Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz, and our Seattle Seahawks season is over. They finish 8-2 and two on the road to come up just short in the divisional round, losing 28-23 to the Green Bay Packers. Here to talk about it, I'm joined by Alistair Corp of Field Goals. Alistair, the Seahawks, they had their opportunity in the closing moments of the game, and they just couldn't get it done on either side of the football. Yeah, you know, that offensive drive really stung, like turn dropping, but it's the third and longs on defense that are going to uh, gonna stick with me for a while here. The third and longs on defense, they get a couple of them converted, and the one that I think is going to stick with us, because I already see it circulating on social media, that Jimmy Graham catch, and you see the pictures going around of the, the line again, the yellow line, Jimmy Graham's helmet short of that. And I, I knew going into this game, Alistair, that we were going to have some moment just because it always happens, you know, from Matt Hasselbeck to the successful Hail Mary catch to Golden Tate. It just between the Seahawks and Packers, there's always something. It always goes bonkers. You know, I wrote the other day that it was like Seattle's either blown them out at home or broken their hearts. And then they always get blown at Lambeau. I guess it was close. But this time the, uh, the heartbreak happened at Lambeau, but happened to the Seahawks. I'm not even that frustrated by that picture that's going around because you know I did go back and look at it a couple times and it looked like the yellow line was a little bit ahead of where the actual first down marker was so I I know that's the quote-unquote unofficial line but uh, it still doesn't make me feel any better knowing that Jimmy Graham was the guy of all people and you know he didn't have an amazing night I don't know if you call it like a Jimmy Graham revenge game night you know just three catches uh, for 49 yards but just the fact that he he did catch the the pass to seal it is a little bit troubling to me. Yeah, and you know, it even, like never mind the fact that it was Graham. The whole additional information thing just drove me up the wall. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how do you make that announcement if it's not going to change it. What was the Why, point? Yeah, of that? what is the point of that? The officials coming out just to rub it in our faces that they all of a sudden had this additional information to review. Oh, and we looked at it, and uh, yeah, the call still stands. <laughs> We're going to let you believe for three more seconds here, and then we're going to crush you a second time within a minute. <laughs> Just like, okay, thank you. Oh, that was the worst. And I, I know that it gives us something to laugh about after the fact, but it, it is frustrating because, you know, the Seahawks, they, they had such a great second half going. It felt like they were going to do it. They go into halftime down, you know, what was it, 21 to three, and they're driving at the end of the second quarter. You kind of felt like that they had the opportunity to get points. They're coming off a missed field goal in that first half. And gosh, if they could get even a field goal in that moment, but Russell Wilson going for it all there in that moment and trying to get the Hail Mary to at least get it within 21-10 at the end of the half. But uh, after that, I mean, how are you feeling at halftime down 21 to three? It, it feels like as Seahawks fans in the divisional round, we're always in this situation where we're going into halftime down big. Honestly, I think it needs to be a three score game with six minutes left for me to kind of think, ah, oh, this one might be over because <laughs> you're starting to count them out. You're getting frustrated and they charge back. But that decision to go for the Hail Mary at the end, I'd be loved to like, I'm very interested whether that was just Russell Wilson in the moment or if that was a call from the sideline because it seemed totally un-Seahockey to go for it all there rather than just kind of pick up another 10 and go for the field goal. It was, it was very strange to me. I think it must have been the call because you had Hollister there. You had Metcalf there. I think maybe even I saw another receiver in the end zone. So they definitely had the guys down there. But I agree with you. It seemed like in that moment and you still had 10 seconds left. And maybe it was the fact that you know Russell Wilson was facing pressure and he had gone down earlier and you know they're out of timeouts in that situation that they just didn't want to chance 
taking any other shots and and not having one more shot at the end zone. It, it was I, I agree with you though. It was a little curious. Yeah, it just uh, it kind of seems like they went away from not in a good way, but they went away from some stuff that's kind of their their staple today. And it uh, yeah, especially in that situation, just seemed very very strange to me. But uh, they needed a spark because, like you said, twenty one to three going into halftime, and they looked so flat. They finished the day. Russell Wilson, 277 yards on 21 attempts, sacked five times, has the one touchdown. I guess the one positive takeaway is that you had Marshawn Lynch adding two more touchdowns to his postseason total, giving us four touchdowns in his final three games as a Seahawk, likely going off into retirement now. And we got a little treat of a Marshawn Lynch press conference that went for about a minute to two minutes and maybe the most we've ever seen him speak at the podium. It was wonderful. He uh, he did the classic Marshawn thing. You know, I think he said his return was solid because he's just a, a humble superstar and then told the younger players to, to take care of their chickens, which uh, I just wish that I had somebody tell me to take care of my chickens when I was younger, you know? <laughs> he finishes the day with 26 yards, 12 carries, uh, not a lot of running room from the Packers. And I think that was one of the things that was a little bit surprising to me. I know we're down to our fourth, and I don't know what you refer to Marshawn Lynch as, is what string he is in terms of running back coming out of retirement. But uh, the Packers were on the run game. Uh, Russell Wilson was the one getting out for a yardage, uh, outrushing Aaron Jones, who had 62 yards on the day on 21 carries for the Packers. Russell Wilson, seven carries, 64 yards. You know, in that second half, he was taking it and run with it. And that was essentially the Seahawks running game all day. That's the thing. I mean, if you had told me, you know, you're going to hold Aaron Jones to under 70 yards, I would have thought great because Rogers has been kind of a passenger this season, especially over the second half. But then on the other side, they just kind of, they seem more stubbornly attached to the run than they were last week. But their usage of Travis Homer drove me a little crazy. I mean, when did his first touch come on offense midway through the third quarter? Mm. And he was kind of the one, you know, there's no space between the tackles, but they're still just stubbornly running it between them. But, uh, think you get homer into space once or twice you know he he is good for some chunk yardage but just wasn't there for him tonight yeah he had the two receptions for 27 yards uh, but uh, 13 yards on just three carries which gives him a 4.3 average which is pretty decent but i i know what you're saying about aaron jones you know 62 yards and yeah i'd say okay well what are his receiving numbers but then you look at his receiving numbers he only had four yards and so that the the their ability to shut down Jones, it almost seemed like you had to go into this game trying to pick your poison. You know, do you want to allow Aaron Rodgers and that connection to Devontae Adams, which you knew was probably going to be there? So do you really fight that or do you focus on Aaron Jones, knowing that you can maybe make the team one dimensional? And what do you know? Devontae Adams is really the one that torches the Seahawks defense. Yeah, it was just an unbelievable game from Devontae Adams. And then to top it off, you know, you still, Rodgers wasn't the Aaron Rodgers of 2014, 2013 when he was the best player alive, but he had three or four passes tonight that are just like, oh yeah, this is why, you know, he, he has Dan Marino level arm talent, just putting the ball perfectly on plate. But um, yeah, just the decision to put flowers on an island against Adams is just cruel. I mean, Adams is like probably maybe the best route runner in the NFL. And he was, oh my God, what a display tonight. Well, and we saw it on that first touchdown. Well, the only touchdown by the Packers in the second half where he uh, makes Flowers, you know, just miss badly on two different times on his way into the end zone. And Flowers has no help. I think I think there's going to be a lot of frustration with Trey Flowers after this game, just as I think there was a lot of frustration with Shaquille Griffin going into the offseason last year. 
And I just have to, I, I feel like, you know, he's going to learn from this and, and we're going to be back and it's probably going to be these two guys again at corner. But I, I just, I want to get that out there because I don't think that I want to jump on flowers necessarily as like, he's the guy that has to be replaced in the off season. Although I think we're going to hear a lot of that this off season. No, I mean, I'm absolutely with you. I mean, he is like a prototypical Pete Carroll cornerback in terms of like height, weight, arm length. Uh, you know, he's more athletic than Sheila Griffin, and he's only started. This was his probably off the top of my head, 31st career start at cornerback, you know, a safety in college. And he's having these moments, you know, it's it takes time. He's had really positive moments and his numbers were up across the board this year. And, you know, it's funny you make the comparison to, to Shaquille Griffin leaving last year, the criticism he faced. And that was after getting schooled by Amari Cooper. And if you're talking about the top route runners in the NFL, it's kind of Devontae Adams and Amari Cooper right there. So, you know, they're not yeah. just losing to some sort of chump. You know, they are losing these absolute masters at uh, at their craft. And yeah, it sucks that he has to end the year there that way. But um, I think that those cornerback positions are settled and I, I feel fine about them, regardless of how, how tonight went for uh, for Flowers. I got to tell you, Alistair, there was one point in this game where I thought it was turning for the Seahawks in a positive direction. It was going to be the storybook moment to propel the Seahawks into the next round. And, you know, they get the touchdown by Marshawn Lynch, the second one of the day to go down 28-23. They fail the two-point conversion attempt, but then the Packers get the ball back. They start marching down the field a little bit and they get, uh, well, they had that third and 10 where Rodgers throws it to uh, Geronimo Allison and gets the first down. But then they get to third and nine with six and a half minutes left. Aaron Rodgers drops back. You see Shaquem Griffin drift inside Shaquille Griffin comes from the outside and Shaquem gets his first NFL sack. The two brothers converge on Aaron Rodgers, And at that moment, it felt like this is the point that the game was going to turn and the Seahawks were going to take over the ball. They're going to go score. And then it, we were just going to live happily ever after as Seahawks fans. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I fell for that narrative that you're preaching right now. <laughs> I was all in at that moment. Uh, but what a cool moment, though. I mean, I was just watching the video of Shaquem talking about it after the game, and he had a smile on his face, and how can you blame him? I mean, what a they're living a, a storybook career right now together, and that's the most storybook thing to happen to them in their career. I mean, what a cool moment. And uh, yeah, I thought it was going to be it. I thought it was going to be it, too. But then the Seahawks get the ball back. You have Tyler Lockett picking up a first down on the very first pass. They go back first and 10. And Malik Turner gets hit right in between the numbers and not able to hold on. He drops it and, you know, they, they pick up a pass to Hollister and, and then Russell gets sacked on third and five. They punt it away. But gosh, looking back on that Malik Turner pass, if he catches that, they keep the sticks moving. I mean, who knows what happens on that drive? You feel so bad for Malik Turner in that moment, too, because he's kind of been punching above his weight all season. You know, I keep using the term he drives winning. You know, he's he's a really good blocker on the edge. He he's constantly maximizing his yards after the catch. He runs really solid, like smart rub routes where he's not gonna get called for PI. But then ball goes to him in that moment and he drops and he just uh, it's just one of those things where your heart sings for the guy because he's yeah, he's just been a huge com- contributor this year, like way above there where he should have been. But uh it's just the lack of uh the lack of real talent bit in there. Yeah, and I think it does kind of emphasize this idea that uh, the injuries hitting the Seahawks when you have Malik Turner that you're counting on, when you have Jacob Hollister that you're counting on, and he had a couple moments in this game where he came up a little bit short. But these are guys where if you stay healthy, you're you're not talking, you're asking them to be role players rather than you know major contributors. And yeah, I mean Malik Turner hasn't been 
a, a big part of it. And, and, you know, maybe you hope David Moore is in there for that type of play in the middle of the field. It seems like he's good for those types of catches. But uh, it, yeah, it just does emphasize to me that injuries played such a big role in this season. And I, I, I'm kind of grateful for the fact that they were able to get as far as they did. Exactly. I think it, uh, <laughs> it's like the Pam Beasley quote from The Office where it's like, a kid gets behind the wheel of, the, of a car and crashes into a tree. You don't get mad at the kid. You don't get mad at Hollister <laughs> or Turner for messing up in those situations. Like they shouldn't be in those situations. You know, it's not their fault. They're doing their best, but uh, maybe just one more weapon. You know, you're going to have Lockett next year. You're going to have Metcalf next year. Hopefully Disley can come back, but yeah, you need one more person you can count on in that situation. Well, not only that, you know, you get your running game back with Chris Carson and Rashad Penny, and, and we'll see where they go with that in the next year. And I do feel like I, I would have liked to get past this game having one more go at the San Francisco 49ers this season. It just feels like it was destined after two great games against the 49ers that that seemed like it was going to be the matchup again. Of course, you have that legendary matchup you look at back at 2013 that you played in CenturyLink and, you know, to go down to Santa Clara. And I, I'm just not as much looking forward to seeing the Packers go and get blown out by the 49ers next week. Yeah, it kind of dawned on me towards the end there where I just thought, we're going to have a boring, boring weekend next weekend because I think that the Titans magic is probably over. The Titan uh, Chiefs will kind of take care of business there. And we saw what the Niners did to the Packers earlier this season. I mean, I don't think that either game is going to be all that competitive, but Super Bowl should be entertaining, hopefully. Well, let's talk about that moving forward. I also want to talk about where the Seahawks go in the offseason, maybe some moves that we'd like to see the team make. And let's do that right after this. Joined by Alistair Corp of Field Goals and talking about the Seahawks' 28-23 loss to the Green Bay Packers. Russell Wilson loses to the Packers for his first time in the postseason, but he still hasn't picked up a win yet at Lambeau Field. Uh, Russell always wins at CenturyLink. You got Aaron Rodgers always winning at Lambeau. And the Seahawks continue to lose at Lambeau, the last win being in 1999, Mike Holmgren's first return trip. Uh, back as the coach of the Seahawks to where he formerly coached. And I don't know when we're going to finally get a win in Green Bay, Alistair. I'm going to say the next visit. I'm feeling good about it. <laughs> It'll be, <laughs> I don't know when that is, but uh, I'll take care of it. I'm not too worried. I'm towards the end here. Well, maybe it'll be in the playoffs next year uh, if uh, if the Packers can return. But I, I want to see the Seahawks make some changes in the offseason. I think what really killed him in this game, third down efficiency, three of nine for the Seahawks. The Packers were nine of 14, 64%. Tough to beat that, especially when they're playing from ahead for most of the game. And you had to know going in at halftime, it was just going to be an uphill battle, but we've seen the team just battle back over and over again, no matter what they're down by. And I just wonder how Packers fans would have taken it because, you know, Mike McCarthy, he he got him into the situation in the NFC Championship game uh, back in 2014 to where they had the big lead and they come back. And for if if Lafleur would have had to deal with that now, I, I don't know what Packers fans would have done. You know, I think sometimes like you hear the quotes that Rodgers has after these games. You think that for like all his professionalism and polish. Russell Wilson exists in Aaron Rodgers' head. I mean, Rodgers really does not like Wilson. I think it would happen again. Um, we would have had like a Jim Schwartz Harbaugh moment at midfield between Rodgers and Wilson. <laughs> Rodgers hates the guy. It's bizarre. 
I would have enjoyed that. It's too bad that this rivalry doesn't happen more often between these two players. And because, yeah, the, the more moments between these two guys that we'd have. And I guess the, the weird thing is that it's kind of a, a flip-flop of what we've seen from these two teams. Because in the 2014 season, it was the Seahawks defense. And now, you know, the Seattle defense. For as much as I hear complaining about the play calling on Seahawks Twitter and, and Pete Carroll not going for it in certain situations. And well, let's let's talk about the going for it in certain situations, because, you know, the Seahawks, they had an opportunity. It was third and five. Russell Wilson gets sacked. So it's fourth and 11 in the fourth quarter. The Seahawks, you know, three minutes, 22 seconds left on the clock when Russell Wilson is sacked for six yards. They still have all their timeouts. Green Bay has all their timeouts. And where were you at at that moment? Do you do you punt in that situation or do you go for it fourth and 11? Yeah, I don't even see how. OK, this had me very hot. Actually, the people that are complaining about the decision to punt it there are just looking for an avenue to complain about Pete Carroll because the decision to punt there was so obvious. It was so painfully obvious, like nothing in that situation would say go for it. Right. But people would like manage to complain about it because they that's just like what they do, you know? You're upset with Pete Carroll. That's the perfect place to do it. But no sane head coach is going for it there. Like it, oh, that drove me insane because yeah, it's it's such an obvious decision to punt there. I think. Well, yeah, because you know there still is two forty-one on the clock. You know the Packers are probably going to be conservative. And what we needed to see from the Packers is what they did. They had to convert on two third and longs, and you know running the ball because they wanted to. Uh, start to move the clock down. Now they made a little bit of a mistake, I think, on second and eight, throwing the ball. They end up throwing an incomplete pass. It gives you know, the Seahawks a little bit more time on the clock if they were to get the ball back. But then that that deep pass, and you mentioned the fact that Rodgers made a couple plays where it was just right on the money, and that deep pass to Devontae Adams for 32 yards when you know Ugo Amadi is lined up with Adams, and I think Lano Hill was in coverage over the top to give him help, which he was way slow to to get there. But uh, that was one of those passes right on the money by Rodgers. Yeah, that's the thing is if that's how you're going to lose, you're going to lose by like a picture perfect pass on third and eight because your defense can get off the field. That's fine. But to lose because you can't convert on a fourth and 11 and you're turning it over in prime position is just an insane way to go down. So, yeah, it's a. I thought it was a terrible, terrible argument being being thrown about at this time. And uh, even with the benefit of hindsight, I see no reason why they should have gone for it there. Yeah, I think even in hindsight, you take your chances with your defense. And yeah, it wasn't a, a great defense that we've been watching for the Seahawks this year. I, I tried to make the assertion that, you know, it's probably a middle of the road defense. It's just that by Seahawks fan standards that we're just so used to having to having an elite defense. And you know what? They probably are a little bit better if you make some changes here and there on the defensive side of the ball. You know, add a pass rusher, take Lano Hill off the field and have somebody a replacement for him. He was a big reason why on those two plays, you know, he was there covering for Ugo Amadi, who I know that as Seahawks fans, we were saying, oh, get him out on the field sooner. But in this game, he had a couple plays where he, you know, saw that he's still clearly a rookie learning. But I have to wonder, too, you know, if you're Pete Carroll, if you put Ugo Amadi in earlier on in the season, maybe by this point now, he has a little bit of experience rather than, you know, trying to play through these situations in the biggest moments of the of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think even this week, Pete admitted, like, we wish that we got him in there earlier. And uh, which is baffling because, you know, you, they absolutely should have. And, and like you said, I think he's maybe a bit more uh, more ready for that big moment. Does he get more more game time? But 
think even in an optimistic manner, like they're probably one really good pass rusher away. But just with, you know, you hate to blame coaching without knowing the full picture, but like on that last third and third and eight when Jimmy uh, got the first down, Clowney's dropping off the line of scrimmage into coverage. You're just wondering like, what the hell are you doing there? You know, you're taking away your one premier threat up front and you're just taking away, like you're helping your opponent there. It just, yeah, they need a little bit of retooling, but they have some really good players on that defense. They're just a couple players away. Well, and it really does feel like some of the decisions on defense are a little bit different than what you'd see from Pete Carroll in, at least in years past, like this idea of playing guys with more experience like Lano Hill and maybe even Michael Kendricks to an extent to where, you know, you have some of these young guys that in the past in a tie breaking scenario, you know, the, the veteran, yeah, they might have more experience. They might be able to, you know, they might be slightly better, but you're counting on putting a rookie in there who is going to grow. And then so by the end of the season that he surpasses whatever that veterans ceiling is at that particular point. No, totally. It was all, it was very curious from the start, you know, it was, uh, their decision to take Amadi off from week one after he started there. Um, you know, the decision to stick with Kendricks for so, so, so long. Um, the decision after week 10 when Shaquem Griffin came to the rotation gave them a spark. And then for three weeks, he was just out of the rotation for no no reason. There was a lot of questionable personnel decisions. And, uh, you know, I know Pete kind of has final say there, but I'm very fascinated as to what goes to what blame goes to Ken Norton, what blame goes to Pete. But um, I don't think that Pete is going to part with Ken Norton because they go so far back, but something has to change because they can't just roll it back again. It was, it was way too disappointing that you're on that side. I, and I think you're onto something here because I do think that, yeah, obviously it does. It ends with Pete, but I do feel like when it comes to that idea of playing veteran players over playing younger players, I think Kent Norton Jr., he might have a little bit different viewpoint. He seems like more of an old school type of guy. So I would guess that that's Coach Norton's decision and Pete's covering for him a little bit. He's covering for him and it's just, you know, I was stunned when when Pete, I mean, I don't think it was an official firing, but when Pete essentially fired Chris Richard just because they went so far back, you know, Pete kind of built him up and not that he built Ken Norton up, but they have the same relationship where there's the story of, uh, you know, Ken Norton worked for NFL Network when it first started and Pete was at USC and he went in for an interview. And after his interview, he asked Ken Norton to walk him out to his car and essentially recruit him to co- come coach then. And they've been together ever since, essentially, other than the couple of years where Norton was gone. So you just wonder how easily is Pete going to part with this person who, like, he literally recruited on a studio lot. Like, they go way back. But they cannot run it back again because... You know, I think I'm a lot higher on the talent on defense than most people, but I think there's no, no reason for that unit to not be top half of the league this year. Like there's way, way too much talent for them to be that poor in so many big spots. And it was the biggest thing tonight where you think, you know, you've underperformed, you've underperformed, but just one turnover, one stop is all they need. And they just couldn't do it. And that happened way too often. I mean, I think the only, the only huge moment that that defense came up with all year was Clowney's touchdown against San Francisco on Monday night. And that was it. You know, there's so many opportunities and they just could not do it. And uh, it literally cost them a season tonight, if you ask me. Well, and that's one of the surprising things to me, too, is that Bobby Wagner, you know, such a, and, you know, gets the all pro nod for this year. And he has been such a big part of the defense. But you didn't see those big plays that we're used to from Bobby Wagner. And I'm, I'm having a hard time looking back at the season and wondering what exactly it is that took Bobby out of that playmaking position that he had been 
so often in earlier seasons, you know, was it the pass rush and not really being able to trust the guys in front of him or, you know, not having a guy like Quandre Diggs behind him to, to make some plays. So if he's, or if he's just maybe losing a step, getting into his thirties, I, I don't, I'm, I'm curious if you have any ideas on this. I think it's definitely a combination of a bunch of different factors. Um, you know, I've been very vocal this year in, in the idea that KJ Wright hasn't really dropped off at all. I think he's played really, really well. Mm-hmm. But the one thing with KJ, and it's kind of tied to Bobby Ware, I think Wright's instincts will enable him to play for another four or five years at a fairly high level. But I don't know that the Seahawks can afford to have him and Wagner on the defense at the same time now because they both, you know, I still think Bobby is in the upper echelon in terms of athleticism of the position. I do, I mean, I think he's one of the best players at his position, but even athleticism wise, but. I don't think that you can have him and Wright both kind of declining um, athleticism-wise. So if you have Barton and Wagner next year, you have Amadi playing closer to that 60-75% of the snaps that uh, Justin Coleman did a year ago, then all of a sudden Bobby Wagner doesn't need to be the third or fourth quickest person on the defense. You know, he can be fifth, sixth, like slowest player on the defense, you know, and he can do what he does best, which is like flow cleanly to the football. You know, if they have better coverage over the middle um, in terms of quandary digs behind him, and then you have the the nickelback able to cover the flat, so you're not asking Wagner to go all the way over to the sideline. I think you're going to see improvement. I think this will be a little dip because there was a dip, you know, and and that's okay because he was pretty much played perfect football for the last two seasons, right? Um, like I mean, almost in a literal sense, perfectly. But uh, I think we'll see a, an improvement next year, and I have no concern that he's always going to drop off. I think they still do have at a at a worst case scenario like a Pro Bowl player for the next three years, but I think he'll. Uh, I think he'll be phenomenal again next year. Yeah, and it's it's hard because I'm not saying necessarily that Bobby Wagner w- has you know any blame to take in terms of the defense. It just didn't feel like he made the big plays that we're used to seeing. And yes, he has all the tackles and uh, you know still able to cover dudes. It's just they are missing a little bit of that speed. And I, I think maybe you're you're dialing in on it. The fact of having. KJ and Bobby, it just is that uh, they're taking a little bit of that speed off the field. And now, and maybe with Diggs in there, that added a little bit of, to the speed that uh, allowed the defense to look a little bit different uh, going down the stretch. Definitely. And I mean, you think if there's if there's an improved pass rush next year, that's just by nature going to speed everything up because, you know, by nature, a good pass rush, the offense going to have to get the ball out. And then if you have Wagner with Diggs and McDougal behind him, where we saw how well McDougal played with Diggs there. I mean, that guy was unbelievable down the stretch uh you know you'll have cody barton in there you'll have hopefully marquise blair and dime looks and that's a lot of speed around wagner and then all of a sudden i think i think just uh everybody will look a lot better once that pass rush gets cooking and i'm sure that it will next year because um i think a lot of the 2012 comparisons ring true and i think they're going to beef up the pass rush then i think the entire defense we're going to see a big boost and uh and everybody's going to be a hell of a lot happier yeah i know it feels like every off season when we lose in the second round of the playoffs it, it takes us back to that 2012 offseason and and say that oh, it feels just like that again. But yeah, in terms of making a correlation to the 2012 offseason, that really was issues at pass rush and injuries at that position and, and guys getting old. And they went out and in that 2013 season, they got Averill, they got Bennett. And yeah, you hope that now the coaches see that same uh, I know they have to see it played out because only 28 sacks on the year. It's probably, I think, I think it has to be the lowest total that they've had in a Pete Carroll era defense. Maybe unless you go back to 2010, 2011, but uh, yeah, they have some guys that they can go out and get. And I think that brings us to what 
types of moves we'd like to see this team make in the offseason, I think your number one priority has to be getting Jadevian Clowney re-signed. I'm right there with you. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> my evolution on Clowney has been uh, honestly completely irrational. <laughs> I mean, I think before the trade, it was like, yeah, I just don't want to trade like a second round pick for him because then you're essentially either making him the highest paid defender in the sport or letting him walk after a season. Then we got him. I was like, okay, well, let's see what happens. And then it's like, I don't care if it's 19 million per year. I don't care if it's 21, 23. Bring him back. He's just like, he was so good this year. I just, I hope people really appreciate how amazing he was because uh, the most entertaining thing for me this year with Seahawks football is watching him like pursue the ball carrier from the backside. He's just like, he makes plays that nobody else can. And he saw the third most double teams in the NFL. He put up the highest pressure rate of his career. Like if you get some talent around him, his numbers are going to balloon. And all of a sudden everybody's going to be like, oh, wow, where'd this come from? It was there all along. He's been amazing this year and he needs to come back. Yeah. And you don't necessarily notice it in terms of his sack numbers because, gosh, I'm, I'm looking at the 2020 free agents and sorting them by sack numbers. And you have to go away down the list to get to Clowney, who finished with three. Uh, he finishes below Quentin Jefferson, who is going into this offseason as, as an unrestricted free agent. And there's a lot of guys, though, up there at the top. You have Robert Quinn. He's 30. Uh, Eric Armstead for San Francisco. He's going to be a free agent this offseason. It'll be interesting to see what the 49ers do with him. Jason Pierre-Paul, he's getting up there. I don't know if I'd want him. Chris Jones from Kansas City, he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. Everson Griffin, he's getting up there in age. But then, uh, you know, Vic Beasley, Yannick Ngakwe, uh, there's a few guys on this list that you can look at. Yeah, and like my mindset on that is uh, somebody can throw money at, say, Shaquille Barrett, who, who I think ended up leading the league in sacks or, or a second to Chandler Jones, actually. Uh, somebody can throw money at Eric Armstead, any number of those names. Um, and if Seattle re-signs Clowney to $21 million per year deal, um, Seattle's going to have the best player of the offseason because he is, he, I think he's the best defender on the market and this season only boosted his, my opinion of him. I mean, yeah, I could not have been more impressed with him. I was talking earlier tonight. He, you know, he did get a bit of a reputation in Houston for kind of not always putting an effort floating from play to play. Well, like if I were to put together 20 of his highest effort plays on the season, they're all against the run. And you tell me that a pass rusher uh, who floats is going to put all of his effort into rushing uh, or defending the run. That's not the case. So I think he, yeah, I, I couldn't have a higher opinion of the guy um, to do what he did, especially playing half the season with as uh, painful of an injury as he did. Like, yeah, I just, I, I think a ton of him. And, and if, even if he doesn't come back to Seattle, I'm going to root for the guy. Cause that was a, just a Catfish! warrior performance that he put on for the Seahawks. Yeah, especially having that core injury. And I'm sure it had something to do with the fact that he knew he's playing for a contract in this offseason to why he stayed in there and and fought through injury. But, you know, guys, they they can just they can pack it up, too, and say, hey, I, I have already made a name for myself. I can go get the money anyway. And he could have he could have mailed it in for the season, but he didn't. Yeah, exactly. I think he definitely could have. He could have shut it down. And I think he could have hit free agency and still seen. Uh, over a hundred million dollars on a long-term deal, but he, he stuck with it and uh, yeah, just, just awesome. I, I do really hope they re-sign him because he's everything they want in defender. I mean, his, his play against the run, I think he was uh, the second highest graded player by pro football focus against the, against the run. And then was like 15th against the pass off the top of my head. But yeah, um, yeah imp- impressive in both facets. I, I, I really, I really adore his game. Well, in this offseason, it is going to be a focus on the defensive line because not only is Clowney a free agent, you have Ziggy Anza who's moving on to free agency. I wouldn't expect the Seahawks to bring him back necessarily unless it's for 
you know, one of those uh, deals where, oh, who is the other pass rusher who was a top draft pick that they they brought back for a minimal amount of money? It also maybe could stick around for uh, because I don't think he's going to be in demand after the season he had this year. But you have Al Woods, you have Quentin Jefferson, you have Jaron Reed, you have Brandon Jackson. So out of those guys, I am kind of curious so, to see who comes back. Yeah, I think they have a lot of interesting decisions. I would, um, I, I know he's getting up there and it's not going to be a priority by any means, but I definitely bring Outwoods back because he was really good in a, uh, in a rotational role. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I kind of hammered on about all season long, but he, he's really good defending lateral against the run, which is perfect because, you know, San Fran and LA are so, so predicated on the outside run. Like he's kind of perfect for that. Um, but it, they have to add a couple of guys, but I think it shakes out pretty logically. Like you can re-sign Clowney, then you, in theory, have him and LJ Collier on one end. And then if you can bring in a premier Leo, whether that's through the draft or free agency, then you have him, Rasheem Green on at Leo. Then, you know, you do have Puna Ford in base. Um, you're going to need to address three tech. Cause I don't think, I don't think Toronto Reed will be back. Cause I think he'll get a payday somewhere, but I would be really, really weary of paying him that. Cause he, he was very much a one year wonder. <laughs> None of his numbers were anywhere close to what they were last year. Um, I have no interest in bringing him back unless he's about to take a real low pay, but uh, they do have some pieces there, which is again, just goes back to how, how frustratingly underperforming they were this year. Yeah. Especially when you bring up Rasheem green's name and then you hope that the, the development of LJ Collier continues, uh, you know, it's frustrating with him being that first round draft pick, but you know, we also had to wait some years, even for Rasheem green, we just started to see him develop this year. It took some years for Frank Clark to develop. So maybe that's just how they handle guys on the defensive line and, and Collier was injured uh, for the preseason. So uh, maybe we see something from him next year. I hope so, because you hate to see another waste of an early round defensive lineman. Uh, Deion Jordan was the guy I was trying to think of that the Seahawks brought in you oh, know, yeah. from the 2013 draft class. So I, I think, you know, maybe uh, Ziggy Anza, if, if he can fall into that kind of pay range, you know, maybe they bring him back. But uh, yeah, not a lot of hope for uh, him moving forward. Yeah, it's just funny with Collier. Like we were just talking earlier about Flowers and Griffin, where people were ready to write off Griffin after his second year, comes back, has a great third year. People are already ready to write off Flowers after his second year. Who knows what it'll next year bring? But again, last year, people like thought Rasheem Green was worthless after his rookie season, had a really strong sophomore season. People think LJ Collier is worthless. Let's let's pump the brakes a little bit. You know, players develop at their own speed. Let's wait. Let's see what happens. You know, I didn't like the prospect, I didn't like the process behind the selection. But the reality is that he's on the Seahawks now. So let's like let's let's speak in real world terms and see how he develops rather than just yelling at a cloud about the fact that he's inactive on game day. Yes. I, one of my favorite sayings that uh, we've we've developed over the years uh, on the podcast is it's not always a steady progression towards awesome. And you know, there's there's sometimes the the dips uh, before you get, uh, you know, before you bounce back up. I know we rode the roller coaster with Jermaine Curse for so many years and, you know, he went on to have a, a good season with the Jets following here. So, you know, guys who are, are middle of the road type players, they can have up years and then down years. And uh, especially for rookies, you know, we, we brought up Griffin and then hopefully you, you find that with Flowers moving forward. But a lot of stuff to look forward to this offseason. Any other moves and any, that you're thinking about going into this offseason? Yeah, the big thing for me is, uh, the, I mean, they're in a really good position cap-wise. Um, so whether it's Yannick Ngakwe, uh, who, I mean, logic would say that Jacksonville's going to franchise tag him, but uh, the language coming out of Jacksonville makes it sound like they're going to let him test free agency, which would be bizarre. You need to pair Jadavion Clowney with like a premier pass rusher on the other side to, to maximize him, um, which maybe goes into the conversation whether he's worth a big deal. I think he is. 
So whether that's Yannick Ngakwe or Everson Griffin, who's probably going to hit the market because Minnesota can save like $45 million over the next three years by cutting them, got to get a second premier edge rusher to go with all the young guys, to go with the rotational players, pair him with Jedebel Clowney, uh, and you'll see improvements across the board. And then we were saying it earlier, you've got to add just another weapon for Russell Wilson. I don't care if that's at tight end, at wide receiver, but they just need one more person they can count on in those moments. Yeah, and I'm with you on the tight end spot. You know, with Will Disley going down to injuries back-to-back years, I don't think that you can go into the season. I want to I want to go into the season counting on him for a full season, but I just don't think that that's a wise idea now with with back-to-back years to go ahead and just trust that that's going to happen. So you have to go and find a guy whether it's through the draft or you know, a middle of the road free agent that you can at least count on for the season and yeah, having somebody at tight end because yeah, I like Hollister a lot. I just don't think that he can be uh, necessarily the answer, but as a third guy, you know, if you let Luke Wilson walk, I would like Hollister as, as the third tight end on the roster. No, totally. I think there is definitely use for him. And, and I mean, him and Turner both kind of exemplify like the players on offense who punched above their weight this year. Cause he was, he was an absolute warrior. <laughs> like yeah. There's no reason for him to have contributed as much as he did, but uh, yeah, if he can be an auxiliary piece rather than like the third weapon, then awesome. I'm, I'm all for that. All right, Alistair. Well, really want to thank you for coming on the show and looking forward to chatting in the offseason because I know you, you do a lot of looks at uh, at the draft in the offseason, a lot of scouting players and stuff. What What's going to be your focus here going into the offseason on field goals? Yeah, it's going to be heavily, heavily focused on the trenches. I think that's uh, if, if you were to tell me if I were to wake up after the draft and Seattle spent every single selection on offense or defense line, I'd be perfectly happy. So that's where that's going to put my focus. But uh yeah, we're going to start kind of figuring out what the what the positions of focus are there and uh, starting to go hard at it, which I'm excited for because, um, yeah, drafts a lot of fun. Well, be sure and stay tuned at fieldgoals.com and stay tuned to this podcast as well. Rob Staten and I are going to be taking a look at the national championship for the middle of this week and breaking down some of the players that uh, might be in position to draft for the Seahawks. So stay tuned. Subscribe to the show, sbnation.com slash NFL podcasts, and we will catch you later on this week. Go Hawks.